Chapter Twenty Six, Part Two, of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. Chapter Twenty Six, Progress of the Huns, Part Two. The Huns who, under the reign of Valens, threatened the empire of Rome, had been formidable, in a much earlier period, to the empire of China. Their ancient, perhaps their original, seat was an extensive, though dry and barren, tract of country, immediately on the north side of the Great Wall. Their place is at present occupied by the forty-nine hordes, or banners, of the Mongus, a pastoral nation, which consists of about two hundred thousand families. But the valour of the Huns had extended the narrow limits of their dominions, and their rustic chiefs, who assumed the appellation of Tanjou, gradually became the conquerors, and the sovereigns of a formidable empire. Towards the east, their victorious arms were stopped only by the ocean, and the tribes, which are thinly scattered between the Amur and the extreme peninsula of Korea, adhered, with reluctance, to the standard of the Huns. On the west, near the head of the Irtish, in the valleys of Imus, they found a more ample space, and more numerous enemies. One of the lieutenants of the Tanju, subdued, in a single expedition, twenty-six nations. The Igors, distinguished above the Tartar race by the use of letters, were in the number of his vassals. And, by the strange connection of human events, the flight of one of those vagrant tribes recalled the victorious Parthians from the invasion of Syria. On the side of the north, the ocean was assigned as the limit of the power of the Huns. Without enemies to resist their progress, or witnesses to contradict their vanity, they might securely achieve a real, or imaginary, conquest of the frozen regions of Siberia. The northern sea was fixed as the remote boundary of their empire. But the name of that sea, on whose shores the patriot Sauveau embraced the life of a shepherd and an exile, may be transferred, with much more probability, to the Baikal, a capitious basin above three hundred miles in length, which disdains the modern appellation of a lake, and which actually communicates with the seas of the north, by the long course of the Angara, the Tongosha, and the Genesee. The submission of so many distant nations might flatter the pride of the Tanju, but the valour of the Huns could be rewarded only by the enjoyment of the wealth and luxury of the empire of the south. In the third century before the Christian era, a wall of fifteen hundred miles in length was constructed to defend the frontiers of China against the inroads of the Huns. But this stupendous work, which holds a conspicuous place in the map of the world, has never contributed to the safety of an unwarlike people. The cavalry of the Tanju frequently consisted of two or three hundred thousand men, formidable by the matchless dexterity with which they managed their bows and their horses. 
by their hardy patience in supporting the inclemency of the weather, and by the incredible speed of their march, which was seldom checked by torrents or precipices, by the deepest rivers, or by the most lofty mountains. They spread themselves at once over the face of the country, and their rapid impetuosity surprised, astonished, and disconcerted the grave and elaborate tactics of a Chinese army. The Emperor Kaotai, a soldier of fortune, whose personal merit had raised him to the throne, marched against the Huns with those veteran troops which had been trained in the civil wars of China. But he was soon surrounded by the barbarians, and, after a siege of seven days, the monarch, hopeless of relief, was reduced to purchase his deliverance by an ignominious capitulation. The successors of Coyote, whose lives were dedicated to the arts of peace or the luxury of the palace, submitted to a more permanent disgrace. They too hastily confessed the insufficiency of arms and fortifications. They were too easily convinced that while the blazing signals announced on every side the approach of the Huns, the Chinese troops, who slept with the helmet on their head and the cuirass on their back, were destroyed by the incessant labour of ineffectual marches. A regular payment of money and silk was stipulated as the condition of a temporary and precarious peace, and the wretched expedient of disguising a real tribute under the names of a gift or subsidy, was practised by the emperors of China, as well as by those of Rome. But there still remained a more disgraceful article of tribute, which violated the sacred feelings of humanity and nature. The hardships of the savage life, which destroyed in their infancy the children who were born with a less healthy and robust constitution, introduced a remarkable disproportion between the numbers of the two sexes. The Tartars are an ugly and even deformed race, and while they consider their own women as the instruments of domestic labour, their desires, or rather their appetite, are directed to the enjoyment of a more elegant beauty. A select band of the fairest maidens of China was annually devoted to the rude embraces of the Huns, and the alliance of the haughty Tangiers was secured by their marriage with the genuine or adopted daughters of the imperial family, which vainly attempted to escape the sacrilegious pollution. The situation of these unhappy victims is described in the verses of a Chinese princess, who laments that she had been condemned by her parents to a distant exile, under a barbarian husband, who complains that sour milk was her only drink, raw flesh her only food, a tent her only palace, and who expresses, in a strain of pathetic simplicity, the natural wish that she was transformed into a bird, to fly back to her dear country, the object of her tender and perpetual regret. The conquest of China has been twice achieved by the pastoral tribes of the north. The forces of the Huns were not inferior to those of the Mughals, or of the Mandachuoks and their ambition might entertain the most sanguine hopes of success. But their pride was humbled and their progress was checked by the arms and policy of Vautai, 
the fifth emperor of the powerful dynasty of the Han. In his long reign of fifty-four years, the barbarians of the southern provinces submitted to the laws and manners of China, and the ancient limits of the monarchy were enlarged, from the great river of Qiang to the port of Canton. Instead of confining himself to the timid operations of a defensive war, his lieutenants penetrated many hundred miles into the country of the Huns. In those boundless deserts, where it is impossible to form magazines, and difficult to transport a sufficient supply of provisions, the armies of Valtai were repeatedly exposed to intolerable hardships, and of one hundred and forty thousand soldiers who marched against the barbarians, thirty thousand only returned in safety to the feet of their master. These losses, however, were compensated by splendid and decisive success. The Chinese generals improved the superiority which they derived from the temper of their arms, their chariots of war, and the service of their Tartar auxiliaries. The camp of the Tanju was surprised in the midst of sleep and intemperance, and though the monarch of the Huns bravely cut his way through the ranks of the enemy, he left above fifteen thousand of his subjects on the field of battle. Yet this signal victory, which was preceded and followed by many bloody engagements, contributed much less to the destruction of the power of the Huns than the effectual policy which was employed to detach the tributary nations from their obedience. Intimidated by the arms, or allured by the promises, of Vautai and his successors, the most considerable tribes, both of the east and of the west, disclaimed the authority of the Tanju, While some acknowledged themselves the allies or vassals of the empire, they all became the implicable enemies of the Huns, and the numbers of that haughty people, as soon as they were reduced to their native strength, might perhaps have been contained within the walls of one of the great and populous cities of China. The desertion of his subjects, and the perplexity of a civil war, at length compelled the Tanju, himself to renounce the dignity of an independent sovereign, and the freedom of a warlike and high-spirited nation. He was received at Saigon, the capital of the monarchy, by the troops, the mandarins, and the emperor himself, with all the honours that could adorn and disguise the triumph of Chinese vanity. A magnificent palace was prepared for his reception. His place was assigned above all the princes of the royal family, and the patience of the barbarian king was exhausted by the ceremonies of a banquet which consisted of eight courses of meat, and nine solemn pieces of music. But he performed, on his knees, the duty of a respectful homage to the Emperor of China, pronounced, in his own name, and in the name of his successors, a perpetual oath of fidelity, and gratefully accepted a seal, which was bestowed as the emblem of his regal dependence. After this humiliating submission, the Tanjos sometimes departed from their allegiance, and seized the favourable moments of war and rapine. But the monarchy of the Huns gradually declined. 
till it was broken, by civil dissension, into two hostile and separate kingdoms. One of the princes of the nation was urged, by fear and ambition, to retire towards the south with eight great hordes, which composed between forty and fifty thousand families. He obtained, with the title of Tanju, a convenient territory on the verge of the Chinese provinces, and his constant attachment to the service of the empire was secured by weakness and the desire of revenge. From the time of this fatal schism, the Huns of the north continued to languish about fifty years, till they were oppressed on every side by their foreign and domestic enemies. The proud inscription of a column, erected on a lofty mountain, announced to posterity that a Chinese army had marched seven hundred miles into the heart of their country. The Senpai, a tribe of Oriental Tartars, retaliated the injuries which they had formerly sustained. And the power of the Tanjus, after a reign of thirteen hundred years, was utterly destroyed before the end of the first century of the Christian era. The fate of the vanquished Huns was diversified by the various influence of character and situation. Above one hundred thousand persons, the poorest indeed, and the most pusillanimous of the people, were contented to remain in their native country, to renounce their peculiar name and origin, and to mingle with the victorious nation of the Senpai. Fifty-eight hordes, about two hundred thousand men, ambitious of a more honourable servitude, retired towards the south, implored the protection of the emperors of China, and were permitted to inhabit and to guard the extreme frontiers of the province of Chansi, and the territory of Ortus. But the most warlike and powerful tribes of the Huns maintained, in their adverse fortune, the undaunted spirit of their ancestors. The western world was open to their valour, and they resolved, under the conduct of their hereditary chieftains, to conquer and subdue some remote country, which was still inaccessible to the arms of the Senpai and to the laws of China. The course of their emigration soon carried them beyond the mountains of Imus and the limits of the Chinese geography. But we are able to distinguish the two great divisions of these formidable exiles, which directed their march towards the Oxus and towards the Volga. The first of these colonies established their dominion in the fruitful and extensive plains of Sogdiana, on the eastern side of the Caspian, where they preserved the name of Huns, with the epithet of Euphilates or Nephilates. Their manners were softened, and even their features were insensibly improved by the mildness of the climate, and their long residence in a flourishing province which might still retain a faint impression of the arts of Greece. The White Huns, a name which they derived from the change of their complexions, soon abandoned the pastoral life of Scythia. Gorgo, which, under the appellation of Charisme, has since enjoyed a temporary splendour, was the residence of the king who exercised a legal authority over an obedient people. 
their luxury was maintained by the labour of the Sogdians, and the only vestige of their ancient barbarism was the custom which obliged all the companions, perhaps to the number of twenty, who had shared the liberality of a wealthy lord, to be buried alive in the same grave. The vicinity of the Huns to the provinces of Persia involved them in frequent and bloody contests with the power of that monarchy. But they respected in peace the faith of treaties, in war the dictates of humanity, and their memorable victory over Perosis or Phyres displayed the moderation, as well as the valour, of the barbarians. The second division of their countrymen, the Huns, who gradually advanced towards the north-west, were exercised by the hardships of a colder climate, and a more laborious march. Necessity compelled them to exchange the silks of China for the furs of Siberia. The imperfect rudiments of civilised life were obliterated, and the native fierceness of the Huns was exasperated by their intercourse with the savage tribes, who were compared, with some property, to the wild beasts of the desert. Their independent spirit soon rejected the hereditary succession of the Tanjus, and while each horde was governed by its peculiar mercer, their tumultuary council directed the public measures of the whole nation. As late as the thirteenth century, their transient residence on the eastern banks of the Volga was attested by the name of Great Hungary. In the winter they descended with their flocks and herds towards the mouth of that mighty river, and their summer excursions reached as high as the latitude of Saratov, or perhaps the conflux of the Karma. Such, at least, were the recent limits of the Black Kalmucks, who remained about a century under the protection of Russia, and who have since returned to their native seats on the frontiers of the Chinese Empire. The march and the return of those wandering Tartars, whose united camp consisted of fifty thousand tents or families, illustrate the distant emigrations of the ancient Huns. It is impossible to fill the dark interval of time which elapsed, after the Huns of the Volga were lost in the eyes of the Chinese, and before they showed themselves to those of the Romans. There is some reason, however, to apprehend that the same force which had driven them from their native seats still continued to impel their march towards the frontiers of Europe. The power of the Senpai, their implicable enemies, which extended above three thousand miles from east to west, must have gradually oppressed them by the weight and terror of a formidable neighbourhood. And the flight of the tribes of Scythia would inevitably tend to increase the strength or to contract the territories of the Huns. The harsh and obscure appellations of those tribes would offend the ear, without informing the understanding of the reader but I cannot suppress the very natural suspicion that the Huns of the North derived a considerable reinforcements from the ruin of the dynasty of the South, which, in the course of the third century, submitted to the dominion of China, that the bravest warriors marched away in search of their free and adventurous countrymen, 
and that, as they had been divided by prosperity, they were easily reunited by the common hardships of their adverse fortune. The Huns, with their flocks and herds, their wives and children, their dependents and allies, were transported to the west of the Volga, and they boldly advanced to invade the country of the Alani, a pastoral people who occupied, or wasted, an extensive tract of the deserts of Scythia. The plains between the Volga and the Tanis were covered with the tents of the Alani, but their name and manners were diffused over the wide extent of their conquests, and the painted tribes of the Agathyrasi and Geloni were confounded among their vassals. Towards the north they penetrated into the frozen regions of Siberia, among the savages who were accustomed, in their rage or hunger, to the taste of human flesh, and their southern inroads were pushed as far as the confines of Persia and India. The mixture of somatic and German blood had contributed to improve the features of the Alani, to whiten their swarthy complexions, and to tinge their hair with a yellowish cast, which is seldom found in the Tartar race. They were less deformed in their persons, less brutish in their manners than the Huns, but they did not yield to those formidable barbarians in their martial and independent spirit. In the love of freedom, which rejected even the use of domestic slaves, and in the love of arms, which considered war and rapine as the pleasure and the glory of mankind. A naked scimitar, fixed in the ground, was the only object of their religious worship. The scalps of their enemies formed the costly trappings of their horses, and they viewed, with pity and contempt, the pusillanimous warriors, who patiently expected the infirmities of age, and the tortures of lingering disease. On the banks of the Tanis, the military power of the Huns and the Alani encountered each other with equal valour, but unequal success. The Huns prevailed in the bloody contest. The king of the Alani was slain, and the remains of the vanquished nation were dispersed by the ordinary alternative of flight or submission. A colony of exiles found a secure refuge in the mountains of Caucasus, between the Euxine and the Caspian, where they still preserved their name and their independence. Another colony advanced, with more intrepid courage, towards the shores of the Baltic, associated themselves with the northern tribes of Germany, and shared the spoil of the Roman provinces of Gaul and Spain. But the greatest part of the nation of the Alani embraced the offers of an honourable and advantageous union, and the Huns, who esteemed the valour of the less fortunate enemies, proceeded with an increase of numbers and confidence to invade the limits of the Gothic Empire. The great Hermanric, whose dominions extended from the Baltic to the Euxine, enjoyed, in the full maturity of age and reputation, the fruits of his victories, when he was alarmed by the formidable approach of a host of unknown enemies, on whom his barbarous subjects might, without injustice, bestow the epithet of barbarians. The numbers, the strength, the rapid motions, 
and the implacable cruelty of the Huns, were felt and dreaded and magnified by the astonished Goths, who beheld their fields and villages consumed with flames, and deluged with indiscriminate slaughter. To these real terrors they added the surprise and abhorrence, which were excited by the shrill voice, the uncouth gestures, and the strange deformity of the Huns. These savages of Scythia were compared, and the picture had some resemblance, to the animals who walk very awkwardly on two legs, and to the misshapen figures, the termini, which were often placed on the bridges of antiquity. They were distinguished from the rest of the human species by their broad shoulders, flat noses, and small black eyes, deeply buried in the head. And as they were almost destitute of beards, they never enjoyed either the manly grace of youth or the venerable aspect of age. A fabulous origin was assigned, worthy of their form and manners, that the witches of Scythia, who, for their foul and deadly practices, had been driven from society, had copulated in the desert with infernal spirits, and that the Huns were the offspring of this excreasable conjunction. The tale, so full of horror and absurdity, was greedily embraced by the credulous hatred of the Goths. But, while it gratified their hatred, it increased their fear. Since the posterity of demons and witches might be supposed to inherit some share of the preternatural powers, as well as of the malignant temper of their parents. Against these enemies, Hermanric prepared to exert the united forces of the Gothic state. But he soon discovered that his vassal tribes, provoked by oppression, were much more inclined to second than to repel the invasion of the Huns. One of the chiefs of the Roxolani had formerly deserted the standard of Hermanric, and the cruel tyrant had condemned the innocent wife of the traitor to be torn asunder by wild horses. The brothers of that unfortunate woman seized the favourable moment of revenge. The aged king of the Goths languished some time after the dangerous wound which he received from their daggers, but the conduct of the war was retarded by his infirmities, and the public councils of the nation were distracted by a spirit of jealousy and discord. His death, which has been imputed to his own despair, left the reins of government in the hands of Withymer, who, with the doubtful aid of some Scythian mercenaries, maintained the unequal contest against the arms of the Huns and the Alani, till he was defeated and slain in a decisive battle. The Ostrogoths submitted to their fate, and the royal race of the Amali will hereafter be found among the subjects of the haughty Attila. But the person of Witheric, the infant king, was saved by the diligence of Alatheus and Sapphorax, two warriors of approved valour and fidelity, who, by cautious marches, conducted the independent remains of the nation of the Ostrogoths towards the Danistus or Niesta, a considerable river which now separates the Turkish dominions from the empire of Russia. On the banks of the Niesta, the prudent Athanarach, 
more attended to his own than to the general safety, had fixed the camp of the Visgoths, with the firm resolution of opposing the victorious barbarians, whom he thought it less advisable to provoke. The ordinary speed of the Huns was checked by the weight of baggage, and the encumbrance of captives. But their military skill deceived, and almost destroyed, the army of Athanaric. While the judge of the Visgoths defended the banks of the Niester, he was encompassed and attacked by a numerous detachment of cavalry, who, by the light of the moon, had passed the river in a fordable place, and it was not without the utmost efforts of courage and conduct that he was able to effect his retreat towards the hilly country. The undaunted general had already formed a new and judicious plan of defensive war, and the strong lines which he was preparing to construct between the mountains, the Pruth and the Danube, would have secured the extensive and fertile territory that bears the modern name of Ulachia from the destructive inroads of the Huns. But the hopes and measures of the judge of the Visgoths were soon disappointed by the trembling impatience of his dismayed countrymen, who were persuaded by their fears that the interposition of the Danube was the only barrier that could save them from the rapid pursuit and invincible valour of the barbarians of Scythia. Under the command of Fritigern and Alvivius, the body of the nation hastily advanced to the banks of the great river, and implored the protection of the Roman emperor of the east. Althanaric himself, still anxious to avoid the guilt of perjury, retired, with a band of faithful followers, into the mountainous country of Kukorkaland, which appears to have been guarded, and almost concealed, by the impenetrable forests of Transylvania. End of chapter 26, part 2